Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Democracy Sausage coming to you from the little studio in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Uh, my name is Mark Kenny, of course, and joining me as always is Dr. Maria Tuflicker from the School of Politics and International Relations here at the ANU. G'day there, Maria. Hello, everyone. Hello from the bubble. And also from that same school, which makes it a set of three, really, because I have a connection there as well, is James Frost, been here before, and welcoming you back to the uh, small cupboard studio, James Frost, a PhD uh, researcher from the School of Politics and International Relations. How are you, James? I'm very good, Mark. Thank you for calling me on. Ah, look, it's always a pleasure to have you here. And uh, this week, of course, is the first week of the 46th Parliament, a very significant uh, moment for the nation. Or is it? I guess we're about to find out because the thing that happens, apart from the fact that we're having a new Governor-General sworn in, is that uh, we will have a... Um, you know the governor, the new governor general, uh, General David Hurley, uh, who is going to take over from Peter Cosgrove. And the first thing the governor general will do at the start of a new parliament, of course, is go through, uh, you know, the, the the speech really, which outlines the government agenda. Um, that's, that's be an interesting one. It is <laughs> interesting or or not. What what do you think, Maria? I mean, uh, it's, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that government doesn't really have all that much on its dance card. Yes, that's right. And um, and this this dovetails very nicely with a question we have from from Mark Zanker, who does ask us um, what we do think the uh, opening dress address will deal with. And I guess this really goes to the question of what is the the government's agenda uh, for the next um, term. And um, and I guess. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the fact that the government doesn't have much of an agenda because it didn't take very many things to the election. So I guess the the speech, uh, mm. which is traditionally what the government is effectively telling uh, the Queen's representative uh, what they plan to do for the for the opening of, of Parliament, should give us some hints as to what aspects of the uh, sort of Turnbull agenda the government might seek to revive, um, what projects they'll carry over from the last term, and uh, most importantly potentially uh, mapping out what the Scott Morrison government uh, intends to do over the next couple of years. Yeah, it is interesting because uh, for those who don't know, the Governor-General's speech at the start of Parliament is framed as a kind of a – almost as a shopping list where the Governor-General describes the government as my government, uh, bearing in mind that Gigi is speaking on behalf of the Queen. That's how – Far we've advanced, um, and uh, the, and so the the sort of phraseology of it is that uh, you know each paragraph essentially begins with my government will, and it outlines you know uh, actual legislative uh, goals that it, the government seeks to achieve, uh, policy uh, aims, and so forth. Uh, you know, mention the economy and these sorts of things. But it is very much a um, a kind of a formal statement to the parliament, bearing in mind that the executive, that being the government, is 
whilst it's made, you know, it's comprised, it's drawn from the parliament, but it, but it's also separate in terms of the uh, the way our system works. So it's the uh, effectively the executive informing the parliament what it's going to be doing. Now we know, James, that uh, mm. tax cuts are the big thing, or as the government says, tax reform, uh, which is this three stage tax cuts, and there's not a whole lot else. No, it doesn't seem so. Um, industrial relations, maybe. Um, but the tax cuts for at least the first week of Parliament from Wednesday, it's going to be all you know, um, health and leather just to try and at least bend Labor. Um, mm. I have no idea how they're going to fall. At the moment, they're looking to um, divided to actually hold on this. But in in the Senate as well, at the moment, they're talking to Rex Patrick and um, Sterling Griff, I think, yeah, and probably great, yeah. Jackie Lambie. Who's so those first two are from uh, Centre Alliance, Alliance, the two yep. South Australians. Yep. That's the old uh, Nick Xenophon team. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, they've, and, and Jackie Lambie, who it, it's interesting. She's back in the Senate now yeah. from Tasmania, but she's never been any great. You know, as someone described her yesterday, she's the battler from Bernie. So yeah. she's not normally, you wouldn't have thought, uh, likely to be inclined towards top-end tax cuts, which is, in fact, no. the controversial part of this package. The uh, highest earners would get uh, tax relief of uh, north of $11,000 a year yeah. uh, from 2024, which you wouldn't have thought uh, that many people in Tasmania would necessarily be um, the beneficiaries of. But maybe Jackie Lambie's going to model herself sort of Brian Harradine in the sense that, you know, you want my vote, you've got to do some good things for Tasmania. That's what she's, she's uh, flagged after the election, though since then there have been talks that she's moving into a position of, um, I guess, semi-alliance with the centre alliance, mm. um, which, you know, it doesn't really add up, you're right, um, regarding her credentials as a, you know, um, a fighter for the average battler in Tasmania, because definitely the, the last tranche of the tax cuts will not... Um, particularly benefit many Tasmanians, that's for sure. It's fascinating, though, when you think about it, Mary, because in a way, uh, it's only really just occurred to me, but this could, this is kind of like a minor states alliance. Let's assume that <laughs> they've got Corey Bernardi, right? Let, let, let's just so everyone's clear. They've got 35 of their own votes. They need 39. So they've got Corey Bernardi as well. That takes them to 36. They need three more to pass any legislation. So on this question of what Labor does with the tax cuts, if Labor supports the package in the end, if Labor decides to go down that path, then that's that. You know, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the numbers are clearly there. On the other hand, Labor might faff around uh, not knowing what it's going to do and the government may do a deal that li literally leaves Labor out by getting Centre Alliance and Jackie Lambie or the two One Nation center senators and, and, and Jackie Lambie or, you know, or, 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 or both Centre Alliance mm -hmm. and, and One Nation. Who knows? You know, they may – the point is they, they, can, they can do that. But on this question of a loose uh, agreement between Jackie Lambie and the two South Australian Centre Alliance people, I mean, these are the two most marginal economies yep. in Australia. They're the two smallest states. Um, that's an interesting fact, isn't it? Really, yeah, that, uh, these absolutely. these two these three people could be saying, "Look, you know, you can you can have our votes, but you've got to do things for these less uh, less economically ebullient parts of of Australia." Well, I think I saw figures in the in the paper yesterday uh, from the PBO, which basically showed that. Um, less than 2% of voters in Tasmania and South Australia will benefit mm. from the top-end uh, tax cuts, whereas I think the figure was 37% in New South Wales. And that makes sense. There's a lot of money in Sydney, wow. right? People are wealthy in Sydney. Um, and, um, and so I guess one of the things that has kind of struck me as kind of interesting about the the way um, Centre Alliance has sort of discussed some of these things is um, – 
whether or not they fully understand like the leverage that they actually do have in the in this chamber. And so the government really doesn't want to split these bills because it obviously thinks it's more successful or more likely to be successful to get the third tranche through mm. if it pegs them to the first. But, you know, the Senate has its own uh, legitimacy, its own authority, its own mandate from the yes, people, exactly. right? And people vote differently in the House and the Senate. And so whilst I'm not necessarily advocating that uh, Senate should necessarily do this, but they, they have every right to split up and cut bills up however they want. Um, and um, and I, I do wonder whether or not Centre Alliance, um, you know, a, a perhaps like a lack of experience in deal break, deal cutting, um, kind of fully understands the potential that they have um, by perhaps being uh, a bit more by playing a bit of a harder game and, be, and and showing more brinkmanship in the in the early rounds because they seem from what they've sort of said they seem happy to pass mm-hmm. these um, tax cuts. Well, maybe and, that's just smart though. I mean, I mean, you know, we are let's let's just bust this right down mm-hmm, to basics. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are talking about standing between the voters and tax cuts, and 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 that is generally not a good place to be if you're an elected uh, politician. And particularly so immediately after an election where pretty well it was the only thing that the government had that it clearly stood for when it went to the electors and they, they you know, they re-elected said government. So, but I mean, there's a, a bit of real politic here. Sure, mm. sure. But they're a minor party, right? Like what's the point of a minor party if you don't extract pork from Canberra. Mm. Uh, and I guess that's what I'm, I'm wondering, like in the case of Jackie Lambie, in the case of Centre Alliance, like the government needs these tax cuts. Like this is basically what they said they would do. Mm. The 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 um, incentives for the government to pass this legislation are extremely high. And um, and I think the reality is, is that the government can blame the crossbenchers or Labor as much as it likes, but they're the government. Like they're ultimately responsible for ensuring that the economy is 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 good that they get their legislation through um and you know perhaps there's something that center alliance wants for south australia i don't know yeah no it's a, it's a fair point and as i say i think there is the potential for both of those small states to be doing just that i mean south australia's actually done extraordinarily well from being a, a pivotal state uh, in in recent times, I mean, fifty billion dollars worth of submarines is no small beer. No, um, no. You know that that was partly down to uh, you know the the threat in South Australia, but also uh, the presence of people like Christopher Pine, who yeah. is now in the news for other reasons, uh, taking yeah. a taking a job with uh, EY. Is it to? Um, yep. And he may, you know, and that's straining people's patience. About Erica Betts, particularly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a legitimate question yeah, because what we have here is a minister who leaves the defence portfolio, goes and joins a consultancy straight away, and the potential is for him to be consult, you know, lobbying and consulting on uh, on government policy, with his head full of very recent. Yeah, it's you a know, clear breach yeah, it's of, a massive the, breach. of the ministerial code of conduct. Like, I, I don't think there's any debate about that. But they can't sanction him unless they – or they, they could um, not fund any more EY contracts, but – how are they going to do that? Well, I mean, I think yeah. it's it's not that it's not that they can't do anything. They don't want to do anything. <laughs> yeah. It's not like they couldn't actually create um, like these things called laws, which they <laughs> control in this place called Parliament, which mm. is about to open. Mm. Um, you know, it's not like they couldn't put in a framework to manage these things. It's mm. just that I don't think they really want to. Um, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it ama- you're absolutely right. But isn't it amazing <laughs> that they can always, you know, they, they, they can always find new laws yeah. on national security 
on freedom of the press, you know, like um, uh, as we know, the, the sorts of things that have been in the news, the raids on the ABC and on a, on a journalist house, you know, they can always find new ways of tightening those laws. But these laws, as you say, Maria, they, they seem incapable of uh, doing anything. It's like, oh, we, you know, we've got this code of conduct, but it's kind of voluntary. It's an honest system. You know? and, and you and you watch the, the, the argument that will come out is, well, you know, Labor did this in the past, yeah. which is, I think, that one of the most uh, annoying and frustrating arguments applied in politics ever, which is, you know, this sort of, there's two really annoying arguments. One is, well, my <laughs> opponent did it once, mm. and so therefore I can do it too, mm. which is sort of the toddler defense. <laughs> and the other one is like the umpire thing. Well, uh, you know, Group X is unhappy with me and Group Y is unhappy with me. So I therefore, must be doing something our right. mediocre <laughs> policy in the middle <laughs> must and be And the fine. pub test. That's the, it yeah, passes yeah, yeah. the pub test. But at least yeah. that one involves Which beer. you'd have to be drunk to. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That, that's at least fun, that one. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that one would pass the pub test, actually. No, of course no, it wouldn't. No. I mean, it's, it's, it's from utterly the bubble. Outrageous. Yeah. This is utterly bubble outrageous. Talk. Yeah. Um, and that, that so that was a very good question. Who was that questioned by the one the, the last one we just did? Dealt with? Oh, that was Mark. That was Mark Zanker. Yes, so, yes. yeah, it's a very good question. It does remind me that if you want to interact with us, if you want to send questions into us, we're very eager to uh, to have your feedback and to uh, discuss the issues as you see them. You can get to us through Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. Um, talking obviously with Maria Tafliger and James Frost here on Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny. Um, there's been a fair bit of discussion, obviously, uh, and there will be for some time. I guess it depends how widespread this is, but a fair bit of discussion about how this government came about, which is really saying how did Scott Morrison's leadership come about? Uh, as we speak today, Nikki Savas' book uh, on, the, I think it's called, what is it? Uh, Plots and Prayers. Plots and Prayers is um, is out and it reveals all kinds of interesting uh, details about the shenanigans going on. Is Scott Morrison, you know, uh, do these, does this raise any questions for him? I mean, he's not obviously not uh, – he seems to be the Teflon man. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there's a report today that um, – Keenan from Western yeah, Michael Australia, Keenan. Michael Keenan from Western Australia, saying that he was a quote an asshole. Um, Morrison. This was before. <laughs> That's not very nice. I know, and it's in the book. Um, so apparently, there's some internal um, ructions already that haven't um, mm. surfaced whatsoever. But I think because he got from through the election, you know, that was the yeah, like the taunt like... period. Now it's yeah. now we might return to um, some bloodletting of some form. I don't know. The um, Dutton seems to be definitely unrepentant in absolutely everything um, that occurred during that, that period. Um, yeah, well, Peter Dutton's saying that, uh, he, and he confirmed this to David Spears in mm, that bad blood, new bad blood, blood yeah. thing, that um, you know he would have, he was convinced he could have won the election, yeah. which was why he launched the, yeah. the, the, the tilt at Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and I think... Uh, that's fair enough in the sense that it's consistent. If he didn't, if he if he says now I wouldn't have won the election, then um, yeah, you know sure. that would have well, been. It a, makes him look even more foolish. Yeah, that yeah. would be an utter disaster. I mean, <laughs> what they have to admit is they couldn't count. I mean, at least <laughs> yeah. that much. But I guess what we're talking about here is the revelation. Like to get down to tin tacks, the revelation that although Morrison uh, said that he was, uh, you know, that Turnbull was his prime minister and that he was ambitious for him, I think this happened on the. Wednesday or Thursday, you know, of the uh, of that of that fateful week, um, 
It was uh, not long after that that, of course, Morrison was the Prime Minister. At that same press conference, uh, Cormann had said that he supported the Prime Minister and and, and then abandoned the Prime Minister pretty much the same day. Mm -hmm. Um, And the question is, was Morrison in any way, through proxies or directly, plotting to get Malcolm Turnbull's job? And this, the, these revelations suggest that some of Morrison's votes were used to essentially kill off uh, Turnbull's leadership, therefore clearing the way for uh, Morrison to go for the job. Yeah, and so I guess what is sort of interesting about these you know, claims uh, in this book, um, which will, I, I presume, get a re-airing from the David Crow book, which is about to come mm-hmm. out in another month. And is, is there a third book? Turnbull's book. Well, there's Turnbull's book that will come out for Christmas. So that'll yes. be, <laughs> that, that, that be that a delight? Could, yeah. It could go with your Rudd door stoppers. Yeah, yeah, you know? I've got that well, one. Volume 3 might be out by then too. No, mm. <laughs> <laughs> volume 3 of Rudd's book. Yeah, 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 you know, his post-ministerial career. It'd be, yeah. it'd be amazing. Which but, is going to be in Mandarin, I believe. Yeah. Oh, well, no. yeah, exactly. It'd be called Happy Little Vegemites. Um, <laughs> that was me. Okay. So, but but what is, I think, important to sort of think about with these um, leadership revelations, right, is um, not necessarily the um, uh, the light and dance show about who said what to whom. It's, it's really about how it impacts on the government's capacity to set out its agenda, mm, yeah. you know. Um, so this is, this is the, the government's opportunity to, to sort of – Parliament sitting for them, for Morrison to sort of stamp his um, uh, credentials or not his credentials, to, to stamp his authority on like what this government's all going to be about – but we're more likely going to be discussing whether or not he did order, you know, five of his lieutenants to vote one way um, and, uh, you know, trying to pass out whether or not uh, he he is an asshole, to, mm. you know, according to Michael Keenan, and it will absorb uh, the government's capacity to discuss their own agenda because, you know, they go to an interview, the first question they're going to be asked is, well, what did you say or what did you think or what did you think happened when, right? Not, you know, so the government is planning to fix the NDIS, how's that going to work? But I, I was just going to say that um, I, I don't think that that to them at the moment would be too much of a, an issue because I think they're really trying to just have a, a broadest church approach in terms of don't upset any of the factions within the Liberal Party to figure out what they're going to do going forward with the you know, economic headwinds, with climate policy. Don't you think this just pokes the nest? I, I do, definitely. I do. And well, I think- it does and it doesn't. I mean, I, I look, I, you know, literally uh, it's uh, it's obviously, a, you know, great provocation. It, it reminds us of, you know, the sort of architecture of this, this whole government, what happened behind the scenes. But, I mean... Corman, who obviously uh, Matthias mm. Corman, the finance minister, who obviously played a critical role in this, his his decision to depart, uh, uh, his, you know, to, to break away from Malcolm Turnbull and support Peter Dutton, eff- effectively, most people agree, was the kind of death knell of Turnbull's leadership. Um, but you know, when he's interviewed about it, he, there's a certain level of contrition and and all that. But you know, the, he's saying, like everyone in the government is saying, these are historical matters and. And, you know, we're looking forward. Now, I know that's very self-serving, mm. but there has been an election in between these uh, events. Um, we, we know the voters of Wentworth, for example, were extremely upset about what happened to Malcolm Turnbull, which is why they put mm-hmm. Karen Phelps in as their, as their member for a short time. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, as well. Yeah, well, yeah. Ringo, yeah but, but my point here is that 
it didn't, the anger even of Malcolm Turnbull's direct electors did not really last very long. That is to say, you know, when they had another chance, whatever it was, eight months later, uh, to, uh, you know, at the election, they reinstalled a Liberal in Wentworth, uh, even though Karen Phelps was a very good uh, local member, a very connected local member, very conscientious. So if the electors of that, even that seat uh, were not, you know, carrying that anger, then it's it's hard to imagine that it's going to last very long in any sort of material way in the electorate. And, and, and as I say, there has been an election. The government wasn't meant to win it, and yet it did. And Morrison has kind of reframed things. I, I just don't know that this is going to stick to Morrison in any great way and do him all that much harm. That's actually very interesting what you say there. Um, and so you seem to be saying that this this election or this uh, leadership change was sort of structurally different to, to previous ones. That's what and, they're arguing as well. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And so I guess um, in the case of Abbott or the case of Julia Gillard, there were clear constituencies that were uh, upset by um, by these events that were still present within their parties to exert pressure. Do you think that's important? Well, look, I think it's it, you know, you're right to make those comparisons because they are you know we've had such a, a, a tumultuous time. But I do think there are a couple of things here. One is that I think there's a desensitisation factor. I think mm. the more these events happen, the less spectacular, the less kind of um, uh, you know kind of earth shattering they are. Uh, so the voters have tended to take them a bit more in their stride. Secondly, I think you know in Gillard's case, uh, it it came much more out of nowhere than certainly it did when, say, Rudd replaced her again uh, and certainly then when Turnbull replaced Abbott. And the voters did get a chance to vote on it quite quickly and they did not return a majority Labor government. And that could be, though, a reason. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Just around opposition, you know, the uh, term, I'm sorry, Abbott's, you know, blistering attacks on Gillard um, and then Rudd running up to the 2013 election just annihilated um, Labor on mm. so many fronts <clears throat> and turned into a basically a, you know, a personal battle, you know, about these two shady characters who we know that people are lying to, uh, they've been lying and they're not... Um, They've been shabbily governing while even passing legislation. Mm. Um, whereas Labor Party went to this election, last election, um, with a whole bunch of policies, you know, yeah. with a whole bunch of, and they weren't going on the attack Scott Morrison, you know, train. They were putting stuff out there that was more like much easier to sort of reject, you know, it goes back to that, you know, mm. unlosable election stuff. I, I guess we'll see what the parties think about this in the first question time. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, like, does Anthony Albanese have uh, a marked up copy of 
uh, plots and prayers like mm. Costello used to have yeah. of the Latham Diaries where he <laughs> would come and read um, from them, you know, like tactically it'll be interesting to see what Labor thinks they can do with this because yeah. they've obviously they've obviously got their own dramas about the tax um, policy, right, which is more than just tax cuts. It's, it's a reform of the way the tax system is going to operate mm-hmm. um, by making everything um, a much flatter, less progressive. So it is actually quite a big change for the way um, – we, we, we draw money from um, individuals and redistribute it mm-hmm. in, in the form of social services. So it is actually like a big deal in that sense. Mm. Let's come back to that in a minute. We'll just take a break and we'll come back to that uh, question about, uh, you know, what the tax cuts mean in terms of the politics of it, I guess. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, well, back with Democracy Sausage, with me, Mark Kenny, James Frost and Maria Tuffliger. Uh Going back to your point, Maria, about uh, the, this tax package, it is interesting, isn't it, the sort of politics of this uh, um, because um, it, it, it goes to like, I mean, leaving aside the sort of policy questions, just looking at the politics of it, is Labor better off just letting these tax tax cuts through or this, you know, this package through, just accepting the verdict of the voters and moving on? Or, or is it, does it actually prejudice its very reason for being? So we were discussing this uh, earlier and, um, and, and uh, there seems to be two camps within the Labor Party. One, which is basically sort of saying like, no, we should not pass these tax cuts. They are irresponsible, um, you know, and they are against uh, sort of our values. And then another camp, um, which is much more um, zero sum about this and it basically sort of says we should stop protecting the government from being a bad government, to use their language, um, and um, we should just pass these tax cuts. Uh, so I guess um, from my perspective, I think that the the second option is, is dangerous for a few reasons. One, I just think that, um, well, actually, we know this from behavioral economics, like if, if I give you something, like, you know, if I give you an option between a pen and a mug, and you want the mug, but you get the pen, and then I ask you to give me back the pen after you own it. You you don't want to do it. You you even though you didn't want the pen, you now have the pen. It's your pen. You want this pen. So if if in the in the context of tax cuts, if if you give people um, tax cuts and then try to repeal them, um, you know, because that's what Jim Chalmers has sort of said they might do. Like I think this is very dangerous. But further to that, you know, these tax cuts are sort of two election cycles in the future. It's not inconceivable that Labor is actually the government that is responsible for having to actually deliver these tax cuts. And that actually may be a real problem because, you know, ultimately politics in the Western and democratic sphere boils down to to two things. Voters like services, voters like tax cuts. And these two things don't go together, do they? No, they don't. And uh, we see that all the time. I mean, as you know, if you uh, poll people, do you want tax cuts? They say yes. And you say, do you want better services? They say yes. Yes. It's just the paradox of politics. But um, this the, is the, the, the trouble is that only moves one way, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's almost inconceivable to imagine a government. I mean, bearing in mind what we've just seen at the election, yeah. where, where where Labor was proposing from mm-hmm. opposition to effectively increase taxes for some yeah. um, by closing some loopholes that they you know that have been long established. 
in respect of negative gearing, mm-hmm. in respect of the uh, you know negative uh, dividend uh, frank reputation dividend. credits. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I think that's it's just the way that we read the election results, and I think this is a you know everyone tries to frame it in a particular way that's going to serve their party or themselves in the best light, and um, you know I, I'm I'm just not convinced that this was a mandate for you know. Uh, Ongoing tax policy. Sure, they had a, that was the only um, a, the only piece of agenda uh, policy that they took to the um, election, really, mm. uh, except for no Bill Shorten. Um, you know, but I don't see a return to the status quo as necessarily a broad thumbs up for the community to say go ahead, especially when we had so many, you know, uh, such a you know, differential results from, say, Queensland and Victoria through even South Australia, you know, it's not particularly, you know, a thumping win, mm. one, a one-seat majority. Well, no, that's true. But I, I think, you know, you can, you can – that way lies madness in a way, trying sure. to sort of unpick a mandate. I, I think there's a, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion about mandate and it's, you know, it's a very kind of uh, elastic term in a way. But I think a, a reasonable working assumption is that when a government wins an election, particularly in circumstances where it's come from behind, where it has a clear policy agenda mm. – and this one was clear in the sense that it wasn't cluttered by other policies, really. There, that's true. There, there was just really tax cuts and we're going to deliver a strong economy. Well, that, the strong economy has evaporated already, but uh, the tax cuts, uh, I think, you know, voters did vote on them. But the, whether, whether they actually voted on things in 2024, 25, uh, who knows. And but, if they understood the sort of the gravity of the final tranche. Maybe, but, you, you, you know, you've got to be careful here, I think, and, and, and so to, uh, when talking about the electorate and say, well, you know, they, they were given a, a proposal. They voted for the government that was the, for the party that was uh, putting that forward. They rejected the proposals being put mm. forward by the other side. Such is the system, uh, and uh, therefore they should be allowed to happen. I, I think there's a, I think there's a strong, a stronger mandate uh, argument for this government's program as I have seen, and I think there would have been a very strong mandate for Labor had it got elected because the policies it was proposing were so centrally litigated during the election. And, and it would have been a change of government. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and a change of government mm-hmm. is a very clear signal that of affirmation. Um, right? well, it is, yes. except that here's – I'm sorry to be talking all the time, but here's an interesting <laughs> point. Yeah. When you go back to 2013, the mandate question becomes quite problematic because Labor had been so dysfunctional that there was a strong sense, as indeed there appeared to be leading into this election, there was a strong sense of the voters just wanting to get rid of the government that they had and get the, you know so, and, and let the other side have a crack, um, which does make that mandate question, you know, problematic. It certainly was in 2013, and uh, Tony Abbott and Peter Credlin, the Abbott Credlin government, uh, managed to um, you know sort of spend any any goodwill they had within a relatively short period of time. I mean, by the 2014 budget, uh, you know, there was there were promises being broken all over the place and that mandate thing was smashed. Well, yeah, I mean, because that 2014 budget, and James, you can, you can speak to this, mm. um, you know, was essentially a vision for a new and quite radically different Australia. Yeah, this is the beginning of the end for the whole, that, that government and also, you know, it was, I guess, an extension of a lot of the sort of ideological culture wars that um, Abbott sort of inherited from 
um, Howard that hadn't f- been prosecuted, hadn't been finished. But it know? was a misreading of the mandate too, wasn't oh, it? Oh, completely. Like, Absolutely. What, what, completely. He, he sort of misread what the voters yeah. had said. There were, you know, in that case, they were getting rid of a dysfunctional Labor government that was riven and everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas... Oh, well, t- uh, Joe Hockey's tone and, you know, of you know, the lifters and leaners again, you yeah. know, that budget, you know, that budget speech and, and the fallout from it, you know, they never recovered, they haven't recovered so far in terms of news polls since that budget. So that's sort of how damning it was at the time. So, the, I mean, I think what's interesting about these questions of, of mandate is that, you know, these arguments are really self-serving. Sure. Um, but beyond that, we all know that these arguments are self-serving. But, um, you know, parties can claim um, mandates to represent the constituents that they voted for. Mm. So, you mm. know, um, Labor can claim to represent the 48% of Australians that voted for them. And in many ways, it doesn't really matter, right? Because what will matter is the numbers on the floor mm. of the House of the Senate. And everyone will have to take responsibility for how they vote mm. in that context. And so we can we can talk uphill and down dale about well, mandates. Well, that's what we're paid to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it will, you know, like, it, you you know, um, the government will will say we have a mandate. The opposition will say, well, we have a mandate to represent our people. The Senate will say, well, we have a we have our own mandate. The Constitution effectively empowers us to to block, amend, adjust um, legislation. There's lots of mandates going on around um, our Parliament House, mm. and and I mean, you know, um, I'm fairly cynical about uh, mandates, but um, you know, the government has certainly has a mandate to introduce its legislation in the lower house. It has the numbers in the lower house. But what happens in the Senate is actually a matter for the Senate. And and I think This it, is a very purist position. I'm not is. sure oh. I fully agree with it. Oh, well, you know, but it behooves it behooves the, the government to win in the Senate. It has, it has to convince well, people. Well, this government in the actually has improved its position yeah. in the Senate. It, it, quite has, considerably. it has, but and it that, still that doesn't have a majority. Well, yeah, well it says something about the voting system the, changes, yes. right? Yeah. It because does, it's it's yeah. because it's it's you know, I'm 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 not trying to take away from the government's um, improvement of its position in the Senate. That is important. Um, but it also is just a reflection that established parties will now do better in the Senate from now on because of the voting system Except changes. And an interesting fact about the, <laughs> <Except for Labor. laughs> the the Senate question at the moment, you're talking about the, the Centre Alliance and Cory Bernardi who will all be up for election at the next election, mm. all from South Australia. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of real politic, you know, they would be thinking – I don't know. Yeah, what are we what, what are we going to get out for South what, Australia? How are we going to win something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah because why vote for Centre Alliance? But, and they, if, if they, they can't deliver anything, yeah. why vote for them? And they lost, you know, their proportion of votes um in South Australia was just annihilated, you know. Yeah. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that they won't um get uh, good stuff for South Australia because um you know that's like their whole deal. Um but they do they do need to um I think demonstrate that. I mean, you know, sure South Australia's always had this tradition of um I guess this sort of strain of liberal voting um and I mean that in the sort of Smile. philosophical sense, right? Um you know, if you look at the history of of South Australia, you will actually see lots of little breakaway parties, some of which became quite important like the Democrats, right? Mm. Um so there's that tradition of uh wanting to vote in this kind of way in South Australia. Uh but longevity I think does sort of depend on people thinking that they either identifying with these values um or they they're getting South Australia's getting something out of it. Yeah, I think that 
that's absolutely important. And I think Bernardi has made it pretty clear. We'll, we'll wait and see how this plays out. But Bernardi seems to be signalling that he's not going to recontest. I mean, he wouldn't. That's right. He's, he might even leave the, the yeah. before the end. Yeah. So that that would mean another liberal, an actual liberal senator, would take his spot because when he ran on the ballot last time, he was a liberal. Mm. So he would basically be giving up his seat for a Liberal. Yes, and he's deregistered his move to deregister his Australian Conservative Party. That, uh, that's an experiment that seems to have ended in dismal so failure. Does this mean his attempts to return to the Liberal fold have been have been met with? Well, I don't think he wanted to. Well, he says he didn't want to, but uh, yeah. or at least I think that's what he's saying. It's, it's yeah. all a bit unclear. But the, the, in truth, the Conservatives uh, in South Australia don't want to give up. There's going to be one moderate spot and one, and one Conservative spot, one left, one right, I suppose as you say, in, on the Liberal ticket in South Australia and obviously a third senator that would be in a much more marginal position. Number one will be uh, Simon Birmingham, mm-hmm. uh, the Trade Minister and mm-hmm. obviously a, a now a very senior figure in the government. Number two will go to the right and if you're in the right in South Australia, why would you exactly. be wanting Corey Bernardi to come back in and uh, have exactly. a seat after he spent all his time ratting on the, on the party, uh, on the government uh, for so long? So... I think he's uh, realist, realistic enough to know, and I think he turns 50 this year, realistic enough to know that um, you know he doesn't have much uh, of a welcoming uh, committee in the Liberal Party. So anymore. he's going to take the common sense position, is he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's right. Common sense lives here, I think. That's right. His, that's uh, famous, his, that's uh, his blog. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, look, um, just before we go, I want to talk about uh, a couple of things that we saw on the, on the international stage, partly Morrison, partly Trump. Uh, just starting first with Morrison, uh, he's had a bit of a win, really. He's gone uh, to the G20 in Osaka in Japan. He's um, uh, pushed strongly this idea of, uh, you know, uh, controls on, uh, on on these big internet companies, Google and Facebook and so forth, uh, for the way that their um, social media platforms have uh, interplayed with uh, uh, terrorist acts uh, in the past. Obviously, the, the Christchurch one uh, in New Zealand. Uh, so that's um, that's pretty significant, I suppose, that he's um, been able to get this onto the agenda and get Absolutely. the agreement. Absolutely, mm. yeah. lot, lots of photo ops as well with Trump, and you know, make himself look like he's a player. And the yeah, but well, well, he's a player. I mean, you know, he's our prime minister. He's at the G twenty, and, and the G twenty is the top. But Trump can be, yeah. you know, a bit. Um, there's certain people who talk to, and certain people who won't. Oh well, yes, I well, think, he was yeah. described by uh, by Trump as nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd like that. I mean, daggy dads like to be called nice. There was a concern about the the raise of our um, aluminium exports, though, you know, yeah, steel and aluminium, yeah, because yeah, we got a we got we got a special deal. Yeah. I remember when he, they slapped on all those tariffs, uh, whatever it was, twelve months ago, yep. a bit longer, uh, and uh, Australia was able to get a special deal to protect our steel and aluminium exports into the US, uh, and um, and the. What's happened, which you're referring to there, James, is that there has been quite a significant <laughs> spike. Yeah, 300 and something percent in yes. aluminium exports. And to this has placed pressure in the US uh, on um, on policymakers to actually rein that in. They mm. say, oh, well, you gave a special deal to, to Australia and now it's absolutely outcompeting local production. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think, but I think. Uh, Kept a lid on it for now. Yeah. And Simon Birmingham, the aforementioned mm. trade minister, has said that they are reasonably confident that there's not going to be any change to that, but there's a bit of pressure on there. Yeah. Well, they don't. It's it's the whims of Trump in a, in in much you know. Yeah, way. he's a mercurial sort yeah. of president. Um, and of course, speaking of Trump, uh, just before we go, 
Uh, what'd you make of um, of him going to the to the DMZ as they uh, as they refer to it? I even heard Penny Wong call it the DMZ. Yeah, this it's now just now it's the normal name for the the place. Um, it was very DMZ doesn't really work, does it? No, it sure, uh, DMZ. It yeah, um, it's a. A good photo op again. A good chance for Trump just to do Trump, which to is to do the unorthodox. Do the unorthodox. Yeah. It's um, you know, it's completely within his character to tweet something um, the next day, set it up, and just do it. Uh, even though you know, it might break all the norms of protocol. You know, once again, engaging on sort of neutral territory even within the state. Well, North that's Korea. why he's become the first US president. Yeah. Because bear in mind... Are they still at war? They are still, yeah, still at war. war. Yeah. Uh, technically, Police action. Yeah. Police action. And, um, and so he becomes the first president to step onto North Korean yeah. soil. Uh, he's obviously developed quite a bond with uh, yes. Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and um, it's... Uh, yeah, so look, and it... You know, two days. What was twenty four hours before he tweets that uh, if 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 Kim wants to come down to the thirty uh, eighth parallel and have this uh, meeting, he'll shake his hand and just to say hello. Yep. And uh, look, you know, as much as we might want to criticise it, um, and I think there's there's you know good reason to be very, I guess, suspicious about where this could go. Um, at the same time, bearing in mind the first meeting uh, and then the, and then the second one was in uh, in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ended in disaster, a which bit didn't, of a disaster. Didn't end well, but he seems to have got it back on track. If if this leads to something, then you really you really would have to concede that we, yeah. his unorthodoxness, yeah. if I can invent a word, uh, <laughs> has uh, has sort of broken an impasse that has eluded the previous. Well, it really depends on the, on the follow through, doesn't yeah. it? I yeah. mean, um, you know, there was a lot of criticism of uh, Whitlam when he went to China, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. and that all changed obviously mm-hmm. when Kissinger went to China. <laughs> um, and um, and I'm not suggesting that they were um, absolutely linked. Of course, they weren't. But I guess that's the point, right? Um, like, uh, if we are going to say um, nice things about Donald Trump, is that um, he uh, he shakes up the um, game, as it were, and uh, and that sort of shakes out different um, results. It's just a question of whether or not there is actually any follow-through um, from the State Department, I presume, who, mm. who's actually in the position to be able to to run this, um, to to deliver an, an outcome. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's the, how they measure it as well. You know, Trump just says it's about um, the, the fact they haven't launched any new rockets since our talks began, but there's been you know, talk within the State Department that they've been enriching more uranium so you know it doesn't yes and we've got other uh, you know flashpoints in the world particularly iran, iran and, you know yeah. which is another rogue state another yeah. state where the the enrichment of uranium and the you know, yeah, possible it, it, use it, in weapons it's is... bizarre where the mm. you know the attention get mm. gets put by trump but obviously there's political reasons behind that but it's also you just you know you think back six years ago can you imagine an american leadership mm. you know shaking hands and being on good terms with the most, um, I guess, detested or yeah, ruthless dictator. dictator Let's be honest. I mean, this in is a brutal regime. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, which where enemies are killed and uh, political and this, prisoners yeah. are legion. Uh, their yeah. own people are starving. This is yeah. the desensitisation part that's um, so concerning. I but guess. if Trump. Let's be fair. If Trump actually has broken this impasse, if there if sure. there is steps forward, if dialogue is the way to go, and dialogue mm-hmm. can deliver a, a more secure world and a better outcome for the Korean people and and peace on the Korean Peninsula, 
then unorthodox though it is, you'd have to pay that. Look, um, I think we'll leave that there for this week on Democracy Sausage. Thanks very much, James Frost and Maria Tuffliger, for once again another uh, excellent conversation about the issues of the day, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week on Democracy Sausage. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 